You are listening to A Shoulder to Crime On. Topics discussed on this show may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Okay. Okay. Do we have to introduce ourselves again? I said hi, Lucy. Okay. Hi, Kinsey. (laughs) Welcome to A Shoulder to Crime On. This is really embarrassing for me already, so bear with us. Yes. But welcome to our first episode. We're really excited. Our delayed episode. Delayed. We did have some bumps in the road, but we are ready. And we got all of our listeners' hopes up waiting for the first one. So it's a good thing we only have like 25. Yeah. Yeah. 30 was a stretch. (laughs) Hopefully, that'll get bigger. Tell all your friends. Yes, tell everybody. Um, So, our topic this week is serial killers. Started it off easy. Super easy. Broad. Very broad. But everyone loves a good serial killer. When she says love, she doesn't mean love. (laughs) She means is interested in. Sure. Kinsey loves crime. Lucy loves crime. I don't love the act of crime. No, but we love... But if I did, there was no act of crime, I wouldn't have anything to read or talk about ever. Or watch. Or watch. We do anything. Well, um, Lucy, you want to go first this week? Yes. Awesome. What serial killer did you choose? I'm doing Carrie Stainer. Are you doing Carrie? Yeah, I am. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Carrie and Stephen Stainer were two of five children born to Delbert and Kay Stainer in Merced, California, um, a little town that they call the gateway to Yosemite National Park. It's right Yosemite. at the bottom. Is that how you say it? We talked about this. <laughs> you said it. And yeah, I've never... It. You say it right, but the first time you say it, I don't know, it has like a little twang to it. I want to say like it. Yosemite. When I, God damn it. I don't have a twang. Twang. I'm from where? I'm from... I grew up in Iowa. I don't have a twang. Twang. I do have a twang. You do. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Yosemite. Um, but before we talk more about Carrie and Stephen, we're going to enter Ken Parnell. Ken Parnell was a creepy old man who was a bookkeeper at the Yosemite Lodge, which was right inside the park. He was a convicted child molester, and he was probably working in Yosemite to hide from society who had labeled him a child molester, as they should, because he's trash, trash and a child molester. That sounds wonderful. There was a handyman at the lodge um, named Irvin Murphy, who was often described as dim-witted, and easily impressionable because Even he was name Urban. Or, and his name was Urban. <laughs> Not even yeah, Urban. But he was Parnell's like right hand man and would do basically whatever you told him to <clears throat> because he was dimwitted. I wish people could see me do air quotes. Right. <laughs> but they can hear them. I hope so. On December fourth, nineteen seventy two, Parnell got Murphy to get in the car with him and join him on a drive to Merced. Parnell was going there on a specific mission to find a young boy to bring home with him. Seven-year-old Stephen Stater was walking home from school when Parnell and Murphy pulled over and told Stephen that his parents had sent them to pick him up and take him home. And it was the 70s, which were almost as bad as the 80s in terms of stranger danger, as in nobody gave a fuck and kids were just getting in everybody's cars every day for fun all the time. (laughs) Don't do it. So Stephen hopped in the car. No, Stephen. Hopped in the car. Uh, they stopped at a payphone on the way home, home, air quotes, um, where Parnell pretended to call Stephen's parents, and he came back to the car telling him that his parents could not afford to have him as a child anymore, and he had to go home with Parnell. Wait, 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 but Stephen had siblings, right? Four. Okay. But apparently he was the only one they couldn't afford. Okay. He's seven. Of course. I feel like at seven, I would have 
been smarter? Probably not. Is that, so. is that do you think? Well, we grew up in a different time. The nineties. Yeah. Where Stranger Danger was more of a thing. I don't know. Anyway, okay. So Stephen went with him back to this lodge in Yosemite. Um <laughs> Parnell kept him. <laughs> Parnell kept him drugged and confused with cough syrup for the first couple weeks just to make him easy to deal with, avoid him asking questions, whatever. How much cough syrup do you think that takes? I don't know. I have to drink quite a bit to make myself sleep, not that I do it for fun. <laughs> How much NyQuil does it take to knock out a seven-year-old? I'll test it this week. In the, well, not on a seven-year-old, <laughs> on myself. Please don't. On myself. I met on myself. Please don't do that because what if you like don't want Wake up. You just want me here to record. You don't care whether I wake up or not. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so after Stephen's disappearance, his parents became super cold and distant towards their other children. Stephen's older brother, Carrie, took it really hard and personally, as one would. Sure. And he was thought to be just walking around wishing out loud for Stephen to return and Stephen was definitely put on a pedestal in their household, making Carrie feel abandoned and second best, which he should have been fifth best by the Are end of the story. Are you allowed to choose favorites for your children? I guess if one goes missing, I would probably think what? it was my favorite, too. <laughs> Maybe. They're not there to, like, piss you off or do anything wrong, so they're perfect, essentially. Except they got in a stranger's car. Except they got, which was very stupid, but that falls on <laughs> the parents. Teach your children that not falls to get parents. in stranger's cars. So, during this time, Ken Parnell was taking Stephen and traveling all over California, staying in trailers and motels. By 1976, he had enrolled him in school under the name Dennis Parnell, and they were living in a trailer on the outskirts of Compchi, California, I believe is how you pronounce that. Compchi? Compchi? Compchi. Sure. Okay. They were living there, <laughs> and Stephen was attending Mendocino High School. He did his best to live a normal childhood, air quotes, <laughs> even though he was being raped and abused daily by the man who was supposed to be his father, air quotes. Um, Parnell allowed oh. Stephen to drink and smoke, and Stephen knew this wasn't normal behavior, and even though he was out in public and had plenty of opportunities to tell someone about his situation, he was kind of under Parnell's spell. He was taken as a little kid, and he relied on him for food, clothes, shelter, everything, and when he came of age and realized what was going on and realized it wasn't good, yeah. but he was, like, embarrassed about what was happening to him and didn't want people to know that he was, like, so tragic. being raped by this old man every That's day. That's not his father. Right. Not his father. No hair no. quotes. <laughs> and Lori Duke, his high school girlfriend, once said that, after drinking some beers and walking home one night, Stephen started crying and said that he wanted to go home to his real family, but she just brushed it off because she had obviously no idea what he was talking about and just thought right. he was, like, drunk. So, or, like, you know, all teenagers hate their parents. Exactly. Awesome. And you all, like, want to be adopted. Mm -hmm. So you're like, where's my real family? Yeah. Where are the people that like or me I am adopted. the most? I don't know how many times I used to say that. I still say that. I still say I'm adopted. You never told me that. Well, I think I'm adopted. Are you adopted? Okay. <laughs> it might be. Back to Carrie. Uh, if you look at pictures of Carrie during the time that Stephen was missing, he is always wearing hats because he would compulsively pull out his hair. Oh, my God. After, like, the trauma of Stephen disappearing, 
which I'm sure there was other stuff going on there before, but that just like triggered. When I was really little, I pulled out like all of my eyelashes once. My mom used to do that. She told me all the time that she literally pulled her eyelashes and her eyebrows. I didn't fuck with my eyebrows because there's too many of them, first of all. But I pull all my eyelashes. I remember being like seven and my mom just being like, Oh, doesn't that hurt? I guess not as much as you try it. <laughs> I'm not trying it. <laughs> I like my eyelashes. But I was a very anxious child, so it makes sense. I don't think I'm a serial killer. I'm not. You don't think you're I'm a not. serial killer? I mean, I don't We're think We're pretty will sure be. she's not a serial killer. Yet, this podcast least, will sure so. get juicy. <laughs> Um, aside from ripping out all the hair on his head, he started exposing himself to his sister's friends and was super inappropriate with women in general. And if you look at anything that he did during this time, it was all like super big red flags. Just huge ones. Nobody paid attention to him because nobody cared because his brother was missing. But no one cares about poor Carrie. I wouldn't say poor Carrie. Well, he was at this At that time. Well, except for him exposing himself... Anyway, in 1979, Parnell and Stephen moved to a one-room cabin near a very remote town called Manchester. Parnell was trying to stay... Is this all in, like, California? Yes, they stayed there the whole time. Parnell, I think when they ended up finding him, he was only, like, like an hour away from where he grew up, maybe? That close... Spoiler alert, but... Anyway. Um, Parnell was trying to stay a step ahead of law enforcement, so he kept moving, and he was on the hunt for another boy, because Stephen was a teenager now, and they, right, he wanted someone younger and someone he could control, and they both knew, I know, can you, like, see, you can see, like, all my eyebrows and, like, facial mustache hair in direct light, so I feel like that's what you're staring at. No, it's just really bright. I know it is. The sun. Okay, keep your eyes shut. Keep your eyes shut, then. Blowing. No. It keeps it out of my ass. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) Perfect. But before, I mean, Stephen knew this was going to happen and that he was going to be kicked to the curb eventually, but still under Parnell's little spell. Wait, so at this point, does he realize that this guy isn't his dad? Yeah. I mean, he knew it the whole, he knew it the whole time, but he was just like, this is who like raised him basically. Mm -hmm. And he thought his family didn't want him. Okay. And he had, like, you know, he was yeah, like, where am okay. I going to go? What am I going to do? Sure. He didn't know, like, he can text anybody because it was the 70s. SOS. Yeah. Beep and beep beep. Right. <laughs> he can share his location. But, so Parnell got him to go into town with him, and they found five-year-old Timothy White walking down the street, and Stephen helped Parnell lure Timothy into the car, and they took him back to the little cabin but after Timothy being there for two weeks and Stephen watching what was happening to him, something clicked and he realized he couldn't let the same thing that happened to him happen right. to another kid. And so one morning when Parnell went to work, Stephen took Timothy out of the house. They hitchhiked into town and not knowing where else to go. They went to the police station. And I think this was the name of like the made-for-TV movie. But when they walk in, <clears throat> Stephen just said to the cops, he's like, I know my name is Stephen. And then everybody realized it was Steven Stainer, and it was a huge deal. He was all over talk shows. Sure. Made for TV movie. He's been gone for how many years now? Yeah. And his parents, who are clearly a little delusional and, like, fucked in the head, didn't think that Steven or anybody else in the family needed, like, counseling or therapy or any sort of mental health. Was that a thing in the 70s? I feel like, yes. 
something. I don't know. There had to be someone saying, hey, this kid's been like abused, abused and kidnapped for a thousand years. Mm -hmm. But nothing. Um, and in like press conference footage at their house, like the whole family's happily and smiling in the front yard, but you can see Carrie like, we'll post a picture. Yeah. You can see Carrie like in the background, just like grimacing and looking like very, no feelings. He had no, oh my God. not a lot of feelings about it. Um, so Stephen was thrown back into society as if everything was fine and all better. Um, his classmates were super brutal. And we're like constantly making fun of him for being like homosexual because it was common knowledge that he had been raised. A, yes, by a, a forced man. sex sexual <laughs> sexual relationship with his kidnapper. Um, Parnell eventually was caught, and in trial he was sentenced to nine years for imprisonment only, and not charged for any sort of sexual assault, what? which was insane. And after five years, he got out of prison for good behavior, found someone to help him kidnap another child. Are you serious? Yes. Um, but if, he was caught quickly and died in prison in 2008. So he's done. And Stephen eventually married and had two kids. What's um, up with these people who get out of prison to just reoffend? Like, because our entire world is fucked. Wait, wait till my case. Just wait. Oh, I'm waiting. <laughs> but... Uh, Stephen was growing up, moving on, killed in a motorcycle accident in 1989. So Stephen's gone, gone again. And Carrie began taking refuge in Yosemite to hide from his problems. He started talking to anyone who would listen about Bigfoot sightings that he had all the time. And I will go ahead and say that I think there is probably some raunchy smelling eight foot monster out in the mountains somewhere. Because who are we to say there's not? So I know you're new to Colorado, so I'm going to have to take you there is this... Take um, me where? <laughs> to the woods and kill you. I'm sorry. No. To Bailey, Colorado, they have um, a Bigfoot museum. It's really tiny, me? but it's What's so it? cute. Footprints? They literally, it's just like a store, and then they literally have this little small walkthrough in the back of it that's kind of like museum-y. Is that where Bigfoot have they seen they in have, there? I mean, there's been sightings. Of course. How did I not know this? I don't know, but I'll take you. Fuck yes. I mean, COVID's okay. kind of probably See? messing with everything, but we're going to... I bet it will make maybe big looks like... So, I... guys, Bailey, Colorado. Big foot museum. Gotta go. <laughs> I know, right? My house is very bright right now at this time of day, and this is great. Well... I'll give it, like, ten more minutes. So, Carrie was out there telling people about all his Bigfoot sightings, Um, pretty obvious that he was struggling mentally, because... I don't well, think, who doesn't? I don't. No shit. <laughs> Let's touche. Okay, like, touche. I was gonna say not that I don't think he's not real, but I don't go around telling everyone I talk to that I think, I think Bigfoot's real. Bigfoot's real because some people will judge you for that. So I and get it there. Go to Bailey. Not so many people there. Cool. Okay. <laughs> Don't believe me. Um, Carrie was clearly lost, losing direction. Never dealt with any of his emotions from when Stephen went missing. Now Stephen was dead. And at the time, Carrie was living with an uncle who he was really close to. This uncle was shot and killed during a home invasion. Jesus. So Carrie started having mental breaks, as one would, very often, and was acting out in inappropriate, compulsive ways, which I would say he's screaming for help, whether or not he knew it. A little bit. Nobody gave him any. Um, in 1997, he began working as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge in Yosemite. 
He did his job very well, but it wasn't long before his perverse behavior was noticed by the owner of the Cedar Lodge restaurant because they had a teenage daughter who was getting so uncomfortable by Carrie that her mother eventually threatened him and told him to stay far, far away from her daughter. And in February of 1999, Carol Sund, her daughter Julie, and Julie's friend from Argentina, Silvina, went missing from the Cedar Lodge in the middle of a road trip they were taking to show Silvina the area. Carrie could see inside their motel room and easily figured out that they were not traveling with man. So he went to the door saying he needed to come in and check some things. No. Right. And no. at first Carol refused, but then he told her that if he couldn't come in and check it, they were going to have to switch rooms. So he let her come in, or she let him come in. I'm not going to lie. Like, I think every time less, I go to a hotel, I'm always like <laughs> wary of everybody. I like hotels. Not motels, though. Motels when they open to the outside, you know? Oh, those are creepy. I, I would never... Like, I, I would sleep in my motels. car before. Me too. <laughs> I would sleep in one of those. 100%. One time, I went to California for a competition, and... What kind the, of competition? A Taekwondo competition. No, I was hoping you were No. This was when I was an adult. It was for collegiate team trials. And I went with some friends that wanted to stay at... A motel. Uh, no, they stayed at someone's Taekwondo school. It was really sketchy. It was in, like... Like on a floor in a big room. Yes, but it was fine. I slept there one night, and then the next night I couldn't do it. So I asked my coach, I'm like, I want to get a room wherever you're staying. I thought you were going to ask me to sleep in my car. No. <laughs> and it was at some sketchy motel, too, when I slept there, and it was weird. I slept at a sketchy motel in Mississippi oh once, gosh. and I heard sirens in the middle of the night when I woke up in the morning. Like, the building behind me was all caution taped off, and there were, like, 12 cops in the lobby, and, like, I can't do motels. I mean, I'll never do a motel again. I mean, it was better than sleeping on the floor. Which I feel in like, does that make me sound Oakland, snobby? California, and, like, I don't know where I was. People were living out of this. Kinsey's very tiny and blonde and cute, and I don't see her faring <laughs> yeah. well out in the world. I mean, like I'm there's a fight, so it's not like I couldn't take she care is. of myself. She's a wild But, <laughs> listen, I don't want to be in a situation where I have to even attempt to. Me so. neither, because I probably couldn't. <laughs> but, so, so Carrie. Yeah, stay away from motels. Always. Nah, that's rude. Some people really rely on that business, but just stay away from them anyway. Yeah. Not rude. Sorry. Not. Sorry. <laughs> uh, once Carrie gets in the room, he threatens all three of them with a gun. He ties up and strangles Carol, the mother. Of course. Puts her in the trunk of the car. Why not? <laughs> then he goes back in the room where he ties up and strangles Sylvina, the daughter's friend. From Argentina. Yes. And a search was started for all of them. Sylvina's parents flew in from Argentina. There was, like, zero information for a, a while. I did not write down how long, but a while. That's so awful. Um, eventually, a hiker came across the son's rented, burned-out Pontiac 20 miles away from Cedar Lodge. Uh, the bodies of Carol and Sylvina were in it, obviously, along with Carol's camera. And when they developed the film, they documented basically their whole trip to Yosemite, and they determined the last picture was taken of Carol and Sylvina in the hotel room oh, 20 minutes before Carrie how came. How eerie and awful. Right? And they're all, like, smiling would cute. Would you be so sketched out? I would. I'd be creeped out. With a camera. So in March of 99, they were still searching for Julie. At the end of that month, the FBI received a letter that read, air quotes, we had fun with this one. And there was a crude map drawn beneath it. The map led them to a location about 40 miles from where the car was found, and not even 10 minutes after getting there with cadaver dogs, they found Julie's body. So, five months go by, no other murders. The fear lifts around Yosemite, and the FBI makes an announcement stating they caught the killers. Uh, there were two men named Eugene Dykes 
and Michael something. I don't know his last name, it doesn't matter. They were half-brothers, violent offenders with criminal records, which were mainly all drug-related. Uh, law enforcement stopped pursuing other leads, and everyone thought this was the end. Spoiler alert, they didn't do it. Of they were just got arrested for, like, math and were easy targets. Go figure. Uh-huh. So that easy same month... Easy I like that. It should be the name of a star. <laughs> um... So that same month, August of 99, Carrie was still working at the Cedar Lodge, was very well known in the area. Uh, of course, when the search was happening for the sons, he was super helpful to the police, gave them all kinds of information. It's always the people. That it's are always the, the most people. The people that know the most are the people that did in it. In their cases. The people that offer yes. their services to you, they did it. Yes. They did it. Absolutely. Every time. 100%. So I don't know why it's so hard to catch people. <laughs> so. Uh, one of the locations of Carrie's Bigfoot sightings was in Yosemite near Foresta, Foresta, California. I feel like California has a lot of town names that are hard to pronounce. Yeah. You're probably just saying that to humor me, but thank you. I mean, I could look at it. Foresta. I mean, it looks like forest with an A. Yeah, why Foresta? Foresta. Okay. Foresta. But his little spot was at the west end of a big meadow. And in the middle of the big meadow, there was a tiny cabin, a tiny green cabin, that the park service uh, rented to conduct education seminars. Well, Carrie was there being creepy in the trees, looking for Bigfoot or whatever. He sees a girl alone at the cabin. Joey Armstrong was a 26-year-old naturalist living there for the summer. Carrie went up to the cabin, kept her inside, held her at gunpoint, pushed her into the back bedroom. And there was evidence of a serious struggle, which means she fought hard. As you should. Right. Uh, and I think it was that weekend she was supposed to have a date with friends, and she didn't show. So they started searching for her, assuming she was, like, hurt or lost sure. somewhere hiking. Yeah, as soon as they got forest. there. Right. As soon as they got there, they saw that there was a big fight. Um, and not long after, they found her decapitated body oh in a stream near the cabin. Unlike the first three murders, there was a bunch of evidence left behind. Also a decapitated body. I know. Head. Well, that. That. But the first three murders, he left, like, no evidence because it was, like, more planned and methodical. But, like, mm. this one was sporadic and Joey put up a fight. Blah, blah, Um He can scare her. Right. Dick. <laughs> uh, when they were asking around... He had a very distinct car. I don't remember what kind it was because I didn't write it down, but it doesn't matter. But people said that they'd spotted it close to the cabin around the time of Joy's disappearance. So police started looking for him initially just as a witness because he's so helpful and nice. They didn't oh, of course. suspect him. No. Um, but when he finds out that they're looking for him, he heads for a pleasant little nudist resort about two hours north of Yosemite called Laguna del Sol. And I googled this and started, it's still a thing, and just complete nakedness all the time. And it's family. I feel like there's a lot of them around. There's like three in Colorado. Yeah, that's what I think I've heard recently. And they're family friendly though, which I find a little, because wouldn't be like that, that would be like the perfect place for like creepers to look at. Pedophile bad person to go and like watch naked families play tennis or something i mean do a lot of families take their kids to be naked? i don't know but these resorts are family friendly i mean i'm just i don't i don't know what that means we'll go for a weekend and let you know yeah we'll do it um, so he went there to hide out but as soon as police like made it public they were looking for him one of the ladies he chatted with at laguna del sol called the police and when they came to the resort 
She told them that he was in the restaurant and he would be easy to spot because he was the only one wearing clothes. Very inconspicuous. Right? I'm gonna if go you're going to go hide there, to hide, take off your clothes and be and naked. And I'm going to be the most standout guy because I'm not naked. Like, just get naked. Oh, man. But take your clothes off, sir. <laughs> Strip. <laughs> Did they frisk him? <laughs> well, he had his clothes on. Well, right, but I'm just thinking of all the Could other, like, old getting... naked people. Like, Could eating you at a restaurant. Like, getting arrested naked. Like, what would that be like? I don't know. They have to cover you with something. Could you imagine, like, the chairs at that place? Like, oh, no. Butt sweat no. just everywhere. And it's in sweat. California, so you know it's hot. I hate my own butt sweat. Me too. Like, I don't think about other like sitting on a vinyl booth in, like, some 80s no, restaurant. No, like, like, you it's ripped off to everything. Oh, no. Yep. No, no, no. But. In the car on the way back to Yosemite, the FBI agent driving him realized that Carrie was Stephen's brother. And they started talking, and Carrie got very openly upset about what happened to Stephen. And I would like to think that was sincere, but given what happened at the police station, I don't think it was. So they got in there, and they ordered a pizza, and were being really friendly with him. And they initially just wanted to interview him and ask him questions as, like, a witness. Sure. Which is strange to me because they, like brought him in in a cop car but not naked that's not naked <laughs> but that's what they say um <laughs> i think i just heard bigfoot <laughs> there's moaning in kenzie's house somewhere i have a child <laughs> or a bigfoot <laughs> but uh they got him all comfortable and started questioning him and he requested a big fat stack of child pornography to look at well there so, red flag, red flag. Sure, ask the police yes. to provide And after you he asked for that, he just started blabbering that he was never going to be a free man again and just confessed to her murder, which they say they weren't expecting, but I don't know how they weren't. But they weren't. Well, because he was so helpful and he was like, but they took him there in a cop car. And, well, and if he was ran. Like, to Laguna del Sol. Listen, whatever. I'm not a killer. I don't understand. So, he confessed to Joy's murder, um, ultimately confessed the murder of his sons, and when he was confessing to that murder, he was told them that at the time he was dating a waitress from the lodge restaurant, and he went over to her house one night, and she had two daughters, and he intended on killing the three of them, like had it planned out. Which is super sad because they interviewed one of the daughters and she was like, he brought us presents all the time. Like, we loved him so much and like, oh my God. found out he wanted to kill us. But that night someone showed up at their house and he couldn't do it. So he went back to the lodge and was all like, had all this aggressive pent up energy. It was like prowling around just trying to like cool down, air quotes. Um, and found the son's red Pontiac sitting outside no. the 500 block of motel rooms. They were there all alone, and that's how that happened. So either way, he was going to kill somebody. Yeah, but he planned on it being people he knew, which was more awful. So he probably would have been caught sooner than if he would have, don't you think? I guess you'd think, because they'd suspect be... him, right? Well, I guess... Or back then, did they even suspect him? I don't know. Friends. <laughs> but after a three-month trial... Carrie Stainer is just cool in his heels on California's death roll right now. Still? Yes. It takes like 37 years to actually kill anybody. Yeah. Appeals. That's true. And his parents say that they like take pity on him almost. And I don't 
Maybe you should have loved him more as a right. child. <laughs> and I don't feel like what happened to Stephen, like, Carrie would have killed people regardless, I think. Probably. But whatever. It's got to be some, like, deep-rooted issue with no, those parents. Sure. I feel like it always starts with deep-rooted And they look, issues if you look at pictures of them, they look like assholes. Kind of. they? they look like the ones that don't hug you. Oh. Hug like, your kids. Like the Amish. Hug your children. Amish aren't very loving. <sighs> Man. That's Carrie Stainer. That's a rough one. So I like it. It was good. Thank you. You're welcome. Ready for my case? Now that you've changed into your pink leather sweatsuit. I did yeah. not change into my pink leather sweatsuit. I was just saying that that's what that I got she owns sent one. in my like athletic wear subscription box because I forgot to change what I wanted. We'll it's post not pictures. That bad. I might get Lucy one. Those aren't twins. Good luck. <laughs> anyway. My serial killer that I chose. <laughs> His name is Kenneth McDuff. Are you yelling at me about it? No. Okay. Do you feel like I'm yelling? There was a little something. I'm sorry. I will calm down. She's way nicer right now than she is at work. Say that. <laughs> I'm a peach at work. She's a monster. Well, that's your interpretation of it. Yeah. Well, she pinched my nipple this weekend. Proceed. That might be true. You don't have to say anything. <laughs> just keep going. Anyway, Kenneth McDuff. He was born in Rosebud, Texas in 1946. He was the fifth of six children born to John Allen and Addie McDuff. I like the name Addie. There was an American girl is, named Addie. Probably. I was really into those. I think of it as like a dog, like a shepherd dog. The word McDuff makes me think of a dog. McDuff makes me think of the Simpsons. The Simpsons, the beer. <laughs> yeah. Duff. Duff. Scruff. Scruff McGruff, the crime-fighting dog. Yeah. Scruff McGruff, Chicago, Illinois, 60652. Oh, no. That's why. Because it. it rhymes. Stop. Okay. Anyway, at Rosebud High School, he was known as a bully. He dropped out after losing to a fight with an athletic and popular boy. His name was Tommy. Did the boy knock his teeth out? Um, probably gave him a pretty good wedgie. I don't know. <laughs> what did people fight like in the 1940s? I don't know. Probably... I feel like they could get away with a lot more than they could now. I, I bet there were sticks involved. Oh, I'm sure, like, bullying Rocks. wasn't even, like, a term used. Right. Do you think? No. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, I think you're right. No, I don't think it was a term used. Yeah. Or, I don't know. So different nowadays. Everybody hit him with sticks and rocks. Anyway, after he dropped out, he started working for his dad. Concrete, construction, shit. I don't know. Um, so, McDuff's criminal record began two years before, before his first murder. Oh, side note. So Kenneth McDuff is called the broomstick killer. That's how I found him on Wikipedia or whatever. He only killed one person with a broomstick. Did he have any other nicknames? No. That's what I noticed. I mean, I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. I'm not quoting. I won't. But it's just really weird to me. Anyway. So in 1964, age 18, he was convicted of 12 counts of burglary and attempted burglary. 12. Three counties in Texas. Over three counts. I know I've said this to you before, but I'll say it again. I can't believe that Texas lets anybody get away with anything. I know. Tell me about it. Um, he was sentenced to 12 four-year prison terms. Served concurrently. eight years. Yes. However, he was paroled in December of 1965. After so how long was that? One year. Okay. <laughs> One year. Which and I don't get about Texas, because I thought Texas wanted everybody dead. <laughs> Take them out back and shoot them, right? Basically, yeah. 
Well, on August 6, 1965, Macduff and his friend Green, I don't know his first name. Green. Yeah. Maybe it was Green. Green. Mm -hmm. Whom he met around a month earlier through a mutual, mutual friend. A mutual friend. Maybe we both have speech impediments. Probably. It's the nerves. It is. It's the it's nerves. The nerves. first episode, we're going to get through it. It's going to get better than this, we promise. God, I hope um, so. But they spent the day pouring concrete, then they drove around because McDuff was looking for a girl. McDuff. You know, because that's what you do in the 60s. When you're looking for a girl, you drive around, you get one. Yeah. I don't know. Does that work? Or little boys in the 80s, 70s. Just, just get in the car. Or just get in the car. <laughs> At 10 p.m., Robert Brand, 17, his girlfriend Edna Sullivan, 16, and Brand's cousin Mark Dunnan, 15, were standing by their parked car in a baseball field. Doing what? Talking? Chilling? Chilling! Chilling? Chilling? Chilling. Okay. <laughs> Macduff noticed Edna and parked 150 yards away. He then walked up and threatened the trio. I don't know why he had to park so far away to do this. Anyway. Maybe they there. would have scattered. Possibly. Probably not because it the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> So he threatened them with a .38 Colt revolver and ordered them to get in the trunk of the car. Um, with Green following in McDuff's Did car. Did they? Yes, they Never got... get in the car. <laughs> the trunk. You Never know. get in the car. Or the trunk, especially. Ugh, I'd rather get in the car than the trunk. One time a couple years ago, you know, they say there's like a there's like a latch in every trunk that you can mm-hmm. pull. Mm-hmm. I got inside my car and tested it at work. Took me way longer than I think it should have. Well, it's dark in there, so it's not really hard to find. Yeah, and it was, like, kind of hard. I mean, I guess if you have your phone on you nowadays, it'd be easier. Right, but nowadays they'd probably take it, your phone. Exactly. But it was pretty hard. Also, what if it was a hatchback? Ugh, I just hate Anyway, I hate cars. Right? Don't get in the car. (laughs) Never get in the car. So, Green was following in Macduff's car, and Macduff drove the victims forward along a highway and then into a field. He ordered Edna out of the truck and had Green put her into the trunk of his car, of Duck's car. It was a Dodge Coronet. I don't know if that Dodge Coronet. I don't even know what that looks like. It sounds familiar to me. I don't know why. I mean, it's a Dodge. Can't be that green. Probably. Yes, so touche. <laughs> I don't. Sure don't. According to Green's statement, McDuff said that he would have to knock him off, and he proceeded to fire six shots into the trunk of the Ford in spite of Brandon Dunman's please not Ooh, to. Begging doesn't help. No, it doesn't. They were so young, though. Babies. Uh, Macduff then instructed Green to wipe off all the fingerprints from the board. Green's, who the fuck is, Green's an idiot. Yeah, he is. So then after driving to another location, they repeatedly raped Edna. Both Mac- of them? Both of them. Macduff asked Green for something to strangle her with, and he gave him a belt that wasn't good enough for Green, so he opted for a three-foot-long piece of broomstick from his car. Why did he have a piece of broomstick in his car? I don't know, because he wanted to be the broomstick killer. I guess I have a favorite broom, but I don't keep it in my car. It's not the stick part. <laughs> it's the best broom. Is it? We'll post a picture. Oh. Well, I didn't know you could mm-hmm. have a favorite broom. I, you can. Weird to me. But, you know. Alright, anyway. Um, they then dumped her body in the bushes. The following day of the murder, it was announced on the radio, and Green felt guilty and turned himself in. In exchange for his testimony against Macduff, he was given a lesser sentence. Macduff was sentenced to death, and Green was released 13 years later. I'm sure you're thinking, only one person, that can't be a serial killer. Right, but I'm also thinking, why is it so easy for serial killers and other assholes to find, like, loopholes, nitwits, 
to oh, follow them around and do every single thing they because say. Where's my like, nitwit? Because they're like charismatic and charming. So what am I? I'm that. I can be that. Try harder. <laughs> <laughs> I'm charismatic. I'm charismatic. People love me. You're right. Don't. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> yeah. So as a result, um, in the suspension of the death penalty in 1972, and overcrowding I can't in believe Texas, Texas prison, even suspended the death the- I don't know. Texas. You think they would just take everyone who's on death row when it got suspended out back and shoot them because it's Texas. Mm-hmm. And I... Do I need to apologize to Texans for saying I this? Know. I don't feel like I do. I guess I don't know enough about Texas. I don't know enough about Texans. Texans. This is all about your... Your penal Government. System. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Okay. Um, so there's overcrowding in the Texas prison, so many prisoners Shocker. weren't serving their full sentences. So McDuck was given parole in October 1989. So that's like 24 years he spent in prison for the, those murders. Um, within three days of his release, he's believed to have begun killing again. Go figure, because he's a psychopath. That's just insane to me, though, really. You think they'd want to take advantage of their freedom for like... More than three days? Yeah. <laughs> like just well, nap in I mean, a comfortable see, bed at least? He started least. his spree in 1989. When did it end? 1993, 1993 ish. 1992. So he yeah, had like three years. It's fine. I don't know. I have the sniffles. <laughs> um, so the body of 31 year old Sarah Thea Parker was discovered on October 14th, 1989. McDuff was not charged with this crime but returned to prison on a parole violation because he was making death threats to an African American youth. He's a fucking idiot. <laughs> I mean, well, I know most serial killers. At least they took them seriously in the late 80s, early 90s. I guess. Today they wouldn't. And then they'd you're so <laughs> fucking right. You're so right. <laughs> They'd be like... He'd be like so, elected senator of... Right? The, the black youth probably would have been arrested instead. Exactly. Oh, damn it. Anyway. <laughs> on December 18th, 1990, he was released. And on the night of October 10th, 1991, <laughs> he picked up a prostitute and a drug addict. Her name was Brenda Thompson. Thompson. Speech impediment. <laughs> Sorry. Nerves. Nerves. Yeah. Also, my dog is making a lot of noise. She's really not. Kenzie just doesn't like her dog. She's not a very nice person. I'm a wonderful person. My dog's not a good dog. <laughs> anyway, he tied her up, um, but then he stopped his truck 50 feet from a police checkpoint. On purpose? Yeah, on purpose. And then Thompson... Did the cops see him stop? Yes, he did, because she was repeatedly trying to kick out the windshield. She cracked it. And a policeman approached, but when he did that, McDuff accelerated at the policeman. Did he run him over? He jumped out of the way. He was fine. Um, they gave Sacrifice K. yourself. <laughs> he would have just kept going. Well. <laughs> so they gave chase, but they lost him. I don't know how you lose a man a with a kidnapped woman in a pickup truck. Yeah. Can pickup trucks go that fast? I don't know. This is- I don't know. Apparently. Um, so he then tortured Thompson to death, and her body wasn't discovered until 1998. Five days later, McDuff and a 17-year-old prostitute named Regina Moore were witnessed arguing at a motel. He drove her to a remote area and tied her arms and legs with stockings before killing her. Ugh, I would so much rather just be, like, shot in the face than tortured. Oh, for I sure. I think I'd just do whatever I could to piss them off so they Enough. would kill me, so like... Kill you immediately? Yep. Ugh, I just yeah. can't. <laughs> so she had been missing for seven years by the time her body was discovered. 
and that was in September 1998. McDuff is also believed to have murdered Cynthia Gonzalez. She was 23. She was found dead in a creek bed near County Road 312 and heavily wooded terrain on September 21st, 1991, about six days after she was reported missing. McDuff and another accomplice, <laughs> Alva Worley. Where does he find these people? They murdered Colleen Reed, a Louisiana native, on December 29th, 1991. Apparently, they were driving around looking for drugs. Colleen was at a car wash when they forced her into their car. Car washes. Also, never go to car washes. No, not After dark. After one. dark. Yes. Yes. When, when we don't have to go to the car, no attendance. No. You stay in your car to you get your car washed. Never get Keep out. Keep it locked. Yes. No. Not, not good. Um, both men raped her, and although witnesses called the police, they were too late. McDuff and Worley dropped off her body, or... He dropped off Worley and then later dumped her. I would say dropping off is a very nice way Sorry. to say. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> dropped off body. his accomplice. He dumped her body. He dropped her off. McDuff's next victim was Valencia Joshua, another prostitute who was last knocking on McDuff's door. Why? <laughs> Looking for a booty call to get paid. I you knock know. on doors? I don't know how prostitutes work in the 19, what, 90s? Yeah. Okay. Do you know how they work? No. Do you know how they work? Do you know how they work now? Craigslist? Is that how that works? I think so. I mean, I never go on Craigslist for anything because I feel like Me that neither. is what it's for. Exactly. <laughs> so. Anybody still use Craigslist? I'm just worried I'm going to get like, murdered. One time, I would like In to say it was longer ago than it was. <laughs> I won't say when. I was dressed up as one of the birds of war from Always Sunny. So I was like an eagle wearing camouflage leggings. Very good. <laughs> yes it was <laughs> I was at a bar and this guy who was dressed like Slash you know yeah, the guitar player mm-hmm. like talked to me for the bar for a minute but because I'm me I like twitched and panicked and ran away the next day me and my friend Nicole decided to go this is the most embarrassing part to Golden Corral Oh, good. and we sat there so long that we were there for both lunch and dinner buffet Wow, did they kick you out? Make no, you we just laid in the booth and like went for round two. But while we were there, we were talking about Slash at the bar, and I was like, I should make one of those Craigslist misconnection posts. So no. I did. Yes, I did. I couldn't tell you what it said. It was probably... You didn't. I don't... <laughs> I never heard from him. And Fair for enough. all I know, he was like hideous and awful. Oh, man. And he was I, talking well, to me, and I was dressed I as an... I like going on Craigslist and reading those yeah. things. I mean, I was dressed like an eagle with camouflage pants, so, like, what was wrong with him that made him want to talk to me in the first That's place? That's true. Well, you probably dodged a bullet. Dating is hard. <laughs> Dating's hard. Dating is hard. Don't do it. Don't do it. I would never do Don't date. It. Don't get in cars. And if you do get in a car, don't wash it. Don't wash it. <laughs> wash your own car, but from the safety of in the daylight. Your car. Yes. Yes. Or in your driveway. So, anyway... He strangled Valencia on the February 24th, 1992. Her body was found on March 15th. Next was Melissa Northrup, a 22-year-old store clerk who was pregnant. Eyewitnesses were uh, able to identify it. I know. I hate pregnant crimes. Like, I mean, all crimes are bad, but... You have to kill a pregnant lady. Like, she's already pregnant. <laughs> like, that's all. Right? Awful. Oh, man. Um, witnesses were able to identify McDuff in the area of the abduction. Melissa died on March 1st, 1992, and a fisherman found her body on April 28th. 
glad these bunnies are found so far from one another. How many people is this now? Like eight. Um, I'm sorry if I'm going to make you count. No, that's you okay. can count after if you want. You can count after, but let's see. Um, one, two, technically, so four the first. And then one girl, another girl. That's one, two, three. So that's seven. Eight, nine, ten. We're at eleven. Here's number 12. At this point, Macduff had fled to, oh no, I guess we're not at 12. Never mind, we're at 11. <laughs> at this point, he had fled to te he had fled Texas, Texas, obtained a new car and a fake ID. He was profiled on America's Most Wanted, mm. and only a day later, a co-worker contacted the police and told them where to find him. Wow. Good job. Where Texas. did he flee to? I don't know. Not Texas. Alabama? Oklahoma? I think I say terrible things about southern states, and I'm... Sorry. Yeah, I don't know anything. I don't know. I just feel Sorry. like they're all... Okay. Well, yeah, we'll okay. just leave it at that yep. for now. <laughs> Macduff was indicted on one count of capital murder for Melissa Northrup's murder on June 26, 1992. On February 18, 1993, the jury opted to sentence him to death. So he was doing this for like 40 years. Yeah, basically. And then following a number of delays while appeals were heard, the court denied habeas corpus and rescheduled the execution date for November 17, 1998. Gave up Colleen Reed's, Regina Moore's, and Brenda Thompson's burial locations a few weeks before his execution. Well, that was nice. You know, right? What a hero. What a gentleman. What a hero to tell them where. If I remember correctly, he ordered, like, what, hamburger and... Did I look this up? Yes. God, I love last meals. Hamburger with... That was one thing I was a little disappointed to find out Carrie Stainer was still alive because I wanted to be able to say what his last meal was. His was not impressive. Yeah, it was like minute steak or something. Yeah, super gross. I don't know. Is that a Texas thing? Probably. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, anyway, that's the end of our first episode. Um, thanks for joining for us. For bearing with us. And bearing with us. We promise we're... We're going to get better. It's going to get better. Stick with us. Be the original. Stick with us. <laughs> Be the original people. The OGs, as we the progress. OGs. Yeah, why not? Who knows? Um, but email us. You can email us with any cases or things you'd like. Anything or, you want to say. Just um, be nice murder because we're really sensitive anything. right now. <laughs> Lucy sensitive. I'm, I'm very rock. sensitive. <laughs> um, anyway, our email is a shoulder to crime on at gmail.com. We also have Instagram, a shoulder to crime on. You can check that out for a future episode. See what and we're all the pictures of whatever it is I said I was going to post from today's yes. episode. Yes, so check that out. We also have a Patreon, so if you want to help us out to make this podcast better, keep it going. You get want this to content, be better for your own sake. You really do. <laughs> Feel free. You can um, go there. It's patreon.com slash a shoulder to crime on. I know that my mother's listening to this, and at the very least, she should give like $5. So I think and literally, whether you give like a dollar or more, we're going to come out with some cool content, too, for just our Patreon. So look forward to that. Um, but we want to thank you, and we'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to A Shoulder to Crime On. Our music is by Oliver View, and our cover art is by Kinsey Turner.